You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm your host, Renita Malhotra Hora. Well, CY Lung has come under fire for receiving almost 50 million Hong Kong dollars just before he took office. U.S. markets rally on the Fed's dovish stance on monetary policy and the S&P 500 has its best one-day gain this year. Today, we'll look at how inequality and other social problems are undermining Hong Kong's attraction as an investment hub. And joining us for that discussion is Paul Shelty of Shelty Research International. Also on deck, Kingston Lai of Asia Bankers Club will explain about the yield advantage of UK rental property geared towards university students. Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting is my co-host this morning. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Renita. Always great to have you here in the studio with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. All nice right, let's back. let's look at the news headlines for today. Uh, Chief Executive C.Y. Lung has denied any wrongdoing after Australian media raised questions about a secret deal that he made with a listed Australian company, UGL, just before he took office. Pan-democratic lawmakers say that he needs to give a full account. Here's Fed- Frederick Fung. If it is a, a, a fact, first you have to uh, report to the government. Uh, I think uh, he may doing something wrong. First, he has to pay tax, isn't it? And secondly, uh, he has to report to the uh, government when he being elected because the money he collected is after he, uh, he has been elected as the chief executive. And I, I think he may breach some of the law and regulations. I think we have to find out the facts and the, and the truth. And I think we are follow, following up uh, in the electoral. So, Peter, I mean, this is a big, big story. It actually broke last night um, and everybody's talking about it. The question is, how much here is above board? I mean, was the CE actually responsible for disclosing this payout? Well, first of all, obviously, I haven't read through the contract, so I I can't say whether or not there's anything in there that's a, a breach of the prevention of bribery ordinance or any other law. But what I am absolutely certain about is where he is wrong is that he should have disclosed this. When you are the chief executive of Hong Kong and when you're a senior government official, the public has a right to know what commercial agreements you've entered into, what financial transactions you've undertaken to be able to scrutinise you to make sure that there's no conflict of interest, there's no question that someone may be trying to buy influence or this may be, you know, taking up too much of your time. So this absolutely should have been disclosed and it and there was several occasions over the past few years where it could have been disclosed, but he hasn't disclosed it and that and that's where it's wrong. And we're talking about a, a huge sum of money here, fifty million Hong Kong dollars, not small amounts. Absolutely. But uh, as you very correctly say, none of us have read the contract. Yep. Um, so is the assumption then that there is something in the contract that clears him? 
Well, there there could be, but and why but hasn't this he come is, out with it yet? But this is why you disclose. You know, when you are a government official, you disclose all these types of commercial arrangements so that it, it's all above board. People can scrutinise that contract and that agreement and can make sure in their minds that there isn't a conflict of interest. When you don't disclose, what has happened now is exactly what normally happens. People question, well, why didn't you say something about this? Why didn't you tell us? Is there something in this contract that is that is wrong or is not above board? And, you know, uh, the, the chief executive is a, is a businessman. He's a seasoned mm. politician. We've seen this in other countries around the world. I mean, the UK cabinet ministers have lost their jobs over failing to disclose, you know, um, payments of just a few pounds in some cases. And we're talking about more money than most people earn in their lifetimes here. Yeah. As big of a story as this is, Peter, what does it mean from a business news perspective? I mean, does it quest put Hong Kong's uh, stature as a financial centre into question at all? I don't think it puts Hong Kong's stature as a financial centre in, in any doubt. What it, what it will do is that people will scrutinise, you know, how are these things um, sort of regulated? How do we make sure in future that people who are top government officials do disclose their commercial agreements, um, you know, and, and the bodies that are responsible for doing that um, need to, you know, need to come under scrutiny themselves. Absolutely. All right, moving on to U.S. stocks, uh, which soared and the dollar fell on a wave of investor release, uh, relief excuse me, after the Federal Reserve showed that it would keep its dovish stance on monetary policy, meaning it doesn't plan to hike interest rates before the economy can support an increase. In minutes from its mid-September meeting, the Fed said that some of the participants wanted to err on the side of patience to keep supporting the U.S. economy for longer than expected. And this less aggressive posture lit a fire under U.S. stocks, which have struggled in recent days and helped drive the S&P to its best one-day gain in nearly a year. In general, there are kind of two reasons why growth is low. The first one is legacies from the crisis. You know, if you have... Uh, sorry, wrong decart there. The Dow gained 1.6% to 16,994. The S&P jumped 1.8% to 1,968. And the Nasdaq soared almost 2% to 4,468. The 10-year U.S. Treasury rose to yield uh, 2.3%, which is its lowest level since June 2013. And the dollar index, which tracks the greenback against six major currencies, slipped for a third consecutive session, down half a percent at 85. European stock markets fell, extending uh, Tuesday's sharp losses, actually, uh, caused by a weak um, weak, economic growth forecasts and the spreading Ebola crisis. London's FTSE 100 slid two-tenths of a percent to end Wednesday at 6,482, while in Paris, the CAC 40 tumbled 1% to 4,168. In Frankfurt, the DAX index slumped 1% to 8,995. And the euro drifted up to $1.27. Hong Kong broke a three-day winning streak to end six-tenths of a percent lower to 23,263. And Shanghai, which has been closed since Wednesday for the Golden Week holiday, ended almost 1% higher at 2,382. But as elated as investors were, uh, the Fed's meeting minutes revealed some concern about a global economic slowdown and a stronger dollar. Here's Diane Swank, chief economist at Mesero Financial, to read the tea leaves. 
I think most important is the debate not only on the labor market issues, but on the language of forward guidance, the extended period, uh, extended time language, and whether or not the Fed will take that out. I think we're going to see at the December meeting when the Fed actually has a press conference. I think they'd like to walk through that October 29th meeting when they end the tapering and have sort of have it be a non-issue entirely for the market. I think they're going to want to do very little other than end the tapering um, at the, the large-scale asset purchases at that meeting. But in December, they have a chance to explain themselves. And I think they're really going to have to start to grapple with this issue that was brought up in the minutes, and that is what do they do about potentially inflation and people's expectation about it falling below the 2% threshold, and do they actually start being more explicit about inflation as a guide, as a threshold for the Federal Reserve? We know that 2% is their target. We also know they've talked about symmetry in inflation. Will they be willing to say, you know, they talk about overshooting, will they actually be willing to put on paper that they would allow the inflation rate to go to 2.25% or 2.5% for a few quarters? This is the next move we have to watch for. Now, there is fear that monetary policy is losing its power to revive economies. Here's director of the IMF's uh, Monetary and Capital Markets, Jose Vinals. The main message uh, is that monetary policy, accommodative monetary policies remain necessary to support the very weak economic recovery, but that monetary policies cannot be alone. They need the support of other policies because otherwise you don't have a sufficiently strong transmission of monetary policy to the real economy in terms of growth and at the same time you have the appearance of financial excesses which over time might lead to complications regarding uh, financial stability. So monetary policy, yes, it needs to continue doing its job, but it needs the support of other policies, in particular of micro and macro prudential policies, in addition to structural reforms and smart fiscal policies. So has accommodative monetary policy pushed asset prices to a bubble? What we're saying is that across a broad range of uh, asset classes, we see valuations which are uh, too rich. We don't see anything which is uh, extraordinarily out uh, compared to fundamentals, relative to fundamentals, but we see many asset classes across many countries where valuations are on the rich side. And what we're saying is that it is very important that financial policies keep these financial excesses, if you want, from becoming too large because that could ultimately threaten financial stability in a context where a lot of these excesses are happening in the shadow banking and where you have many assets which are not as liquid during stress market conditions are the investors think that they are. So, Peter, what is your take on the Fed's meeting minutes? Well, the, the, the reaction to the Fed minutes was quite extraordinary across a whole range of asset classes. I mean, we saw the biggest um, surge from the low to high in the Nasdaq in two and a half years. We've seen um, bond yields now fall to lows last seen in uh, June 2013 and the biggest three-day move in the dollar in 15 months. So quite, a, quite an extraordinary um, sort of reaction. I think there are three big problems, three headwinds that are facing um, the market. 
markets at the moment. So the first one is that global GDP growth expectations are declining, and the IMF identified that um, sort of earlier this week when they revised down their um, their forecasts. And we have to bear in mind that the IMF is usually too optimistic. We often find that you know their forecasts tend to get revised down quite frequently. Secondly, um, inflation expectations globally are, are tumbling, and you know if you look at the markets uh, such as the Treasury, um, inflation protected securities in the US, swap rates in the Eurozone, they're indicating sort of global inflation at 57-month lows. Mm. Now, this is a problem. Why is um, it a problem? It's a big problem because, first of all, um, it slows down economic growth. Um, it's much harder to stimulate economic growth when we live in a low inflation environment, and in particular where the world is just awash with debt. Global debt is growing mm. um, everywhere. I mean, in Japan, um, sort of debt, excluding the financial sector, is over 400% of GDP. It's 250% of GDP in the US. Um, when inflation slows down, or even worse, we go into a deflationary environment, that increases the value of that debt um, because, you know, the holders of debt rely on inflation to try and erode that value over time. So as inflation expectations decline, it becomes harder and harder um, to service and manage that debt. Okay, so Peter, I think, you know, it's good to sort of try and break this down for the listener because it can be quite confusing. You know, on one hand, too much inflation is not a good thing, but as you're saying, deflation is not a good thing either, right? Because especially when you have so much debt out there, how do you actually try, how does the world try to strike this balance? Well, what the central banks have been trying to do is to pump liquidity in the system, in effect, printing money, buying treasury bonds and other assets to try and hopefully stimulate economic growth. And if you look at the big four central banks, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England, the Fed and the ECB, since the financial crisis, they've pumped $10 trillion um, into the markets. But the effect of that is that it hasn't created GDP growth. It hasn't created inflation. And look at the Bank of Japan, which has been desperately trying to create inflation with probably um, one of the largest sort of money creation schemes ever seen in history. And they can't get um, sort of inflation up much more above um, sort of the 1% level. So the, the policy isn't really working at the moment. Yeah. So what do you make of this argument that, you know, by the Fed doing this or central banks in general sort of doing this pumping money into the system, what they in effect do is create these asset bubbles. I mean, we've certainly heard over the course of months that every single time there is an injection of liquidity, you know, stock markets respond, you know, thrilled, sore. Um, but does this create a scenario where um, when you look at the markets, what you're reading are not actually fundamentals? I, I think the markets uh, are fundamentally disconnected now from the, the global economy and they've lost their ability to be a, a predictive mechanism for, for, for risk-taking. Um, and that's because the central banks around the world are distorting um, financial markets. And we see that in, you know, in, the, in, the, in the US Treasury bond markets. We see all yields plummeting um, to, you know, to, to lows in the, in the uh, in Europe, they're at um, the lowest levels ever in history. And that's not as a result of, um, you know, sort of where we are in the economy. It's as a result of the Feds and the other central banks pumping liquidity into the market. And it's distorting financial markets around the world. Okay, Peter. Thank you, Peter. You always have such great advice, good knowledge and insight, you know, on these topics. Uh, Peter joins us on this show as co-host every week on a Thursday. And um, we always love to hear what he has to say. If you'd like to um, put specific 
specific questions to him, then certainly you can uh, post a comment to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash money for nothing on RTHK Radio 3. Well, we'll be uh, back to look at how inequality and other social problems in Hong Kong uh, are affecting things here. That is right after this message. If a fire breaks out in your building, stay calm. If you decide to leave, carry your keys, mobile phone, and a towel and use the nearest stairway. If there is smoke in the stairway, use a towel to cover your nose and mouth and try another stairway. If there's also smoke in the other stairway, return to your home immediately. Close the door and seal it with tape and towels and call 999 for help. Well, inequality and other social problems in Hong Kong have reached a tipping point that doesn't necessarily bode well for local stocks. Chris Oliver has been following the story. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Anita. Uh, as the Occupy protests continue down in Central and Admiralty, attention is being drawn to the economic factors driving the civil disobedience movement. Hong Kong has the greatest inequality in the developed world as measured by the Gini coefficient. That comes even as unemployment is relatively low at just 3%. Uh, we're joined on the program now by Paul Schulte. He's CEO and chairman of Schulte Research International. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Uh, should we be paying more attention to the wealth gap? Uh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> in fact, you know, just uh, it's almost a, an uncanny predictive uh, a, a number for uh, social discontent and, in fact, revolution. When the Gini coefficient tends to pop above 0.5, you usually tend to have um, social unrest, and that's, of course, where we are now at 0.54, which is uh, <clears throat> the highest in the um, OECD and, in fact, one of the highest in the world. Uh, so, in, so, for instance, uh, about 30 percent of the population of Hong Kong has around 70 percent of the wealth in Hong Kong, and the bottom one-third has about 6.5 percent. So this differentiation in wealth creates uh, a lot of bitterness, and it creates a lot of a sense in which people who are rising through the ranks, uh, you know, uh, university students in particular, feel like they're being cut out of the economic pie, and this creates discontent because they, they see things that are increasingly out of their reach, and they become bitter. And this is especially true in Hong Kong because the higher the per capita income has risen, the higher the Gini coefficient has risen. And this just tells us that the harder people work, the farther they get behind in Hong Kong. And this is an untenable situation. So you, you mentioned that healthy structural change will now occur in a, a number of things that you uh, track through, such as uh, uh, changes in labor law and uh, things like uh, – uh, more women in the workplace and whatnot. But what makes you optimistic that the government will actually implement policies like this? Um, ultimately, you know, I've been living in Hong Kong off and on for 15 years. Hong Kong is a practical place. Um, it, it's devoid of, of sort of, you know, lunacy ideology. And, it, it, and I think people are pragmatic. And I think people can see with their own eyes that it is unacceptable for people to be living in cages, that it is unacceptable you know, for, for the university students that I teach at Hong Kong University and Hong Kong UST, where they feel like they're being cut out of the economic pie, where they feel like they're not going to be able to get a job that's ever, ever, ever going to allow them to buy something, and where people are living in tiny shoeboxes with five people, and they don't have a chance in hell of ever owning their own home. 
So, Paul, isn't this a, a, not just a Hong Kong problem, it's a global problem, isn't it? Because if you look in places like the US, for example, 3% of the population has 30% of the income. So does this require some sort of policy response globally to try and address this problem when, when it's not just specifically a Hong Kong problem? Well, that's right. That's a good point, sir. In fact, a, a dear friend of mine uh, confronted one of the New York uh, Fed governors uh, once upon a time a couple of years ago and said you know, that the zero interest rate policy is creating you know, the Arab Spring. So what we have is a world where interest rates are zero, and the only people who can get rich in this kind of an environment are the people who have access to credit and leverage in order to buy leveraged assets. The rest of the world is just sort of getting thrown by the wayside. And so I think that's right. I think that Hong Kong is problematic. I think the other country that's having a very similar problem to Hong Kong but is slightly further behind is Singapore. So, so I think that's exactly right. So does this mean that trickle-down economics, which is what a lot of the, the central banks around the world are, are following at the moment, doesn't work? That's a, a Trickle-down economics is a total economic farce. It, it just is not true. In fact, uh, the only way to get ahead right now is with access to leveraged credit uh, through your banker. And most of the population in the world has no chance of ever getting a loan to buy leveraged assets. Paul, you mentioned that uh, you're not optimistic about Hong Kong stocks at this point due to these social problems. But really, only about half of the Hong Kong stock market is geared towards domestic consumption. The other half is towards China or mainland China. Uh, So why would you be pessimistic about the, the index in general? Well, I think you still have a very large proportion. I I think, you know, uh, Joe Studwell in the FT the other day wrote a great article about this as well. You have a lot of oligopolies and monopolies in Hong Kong that have to get dismantled because these are are price makers and they're creating circumstances where uh, it becomes impossible for the economic actors in Hong Kong to uh, make a difference. And so I think that when it comes to this kind of um, extreme... Uh, differences in income, it's very natural for governments to want to reach for antitrust laws. Look what China's doing right now. China's reaching for antitrust laws right now. I think that, you know, what is Xi Jinping doing with, with the tycoons in China? He's forcing them to pay attention to the people. And I think, you know, China may have an influence here in Hong Kong by way of allowing, um, you know, greater labor flexibility to have women in the workforce, to get women to be paid more, to break up some of these oligopolies and monopolies, to uh, force uh, implementation of antitrust laws, and to, uh, for God's sakes, you know, get people out of those cages and put them into humane living. As they should. Thank you so much, uh, Paul Shelty, uh, who is the CEO and chairman of Shelty Research International. The time is now 8.24 a.m. and student rental accommodation in the U.K. is beginning to sparkle. Landlords, typically insurance companies who rent to students, stand to gain handsome yields. And typically these investments have been the domain of institutional investors such as insurance companies. But a new project in Schilling is being promoted as an opportunity for retail investors. We now talk to Kingston Lai of the Asian Bankers Club. Uh, he's the CEO of the Asian Bankers Club about a project known as Schilling's Yard in Canterbury. Kingston, good morning. Good morning. So investing in student housing um, or, you know, student rental accommodation, isn't that risky business? 
Well, it's not not really risky to be honest, because <clears throat> you are facing a very um, attractive asset class. Uh, you have, uh, first of all, you know, very high rental yield. You're talking about ten percent per annum here, uh, typically, and you have students paying you in advance. You know, these guys paying you, you know, every three months or a year in advance. So to me, it, it does look like a very good deal. So when we think of students, we always think about you know them sort of being strapped for cash, paying off student loans. Uh, how do we know that at any given point? that is not going to just evaporate. You say that they are perhaps paying in advance. That's a good thing. But are they all paying in advance? Uh, most of them do in the UK. I mean, I'm not sure about the US, but in the UK, they, they do that. And a lot of these students, they get loans or scholarships. And what they do is they'll pay off once they get the loan from the universities. That's how they do it. If, so typically, yeah, you'll find that for this asset class, the default risk is actually much lower than, than even residential. Even though many students in the UK, they, they end up with sort of debts for many, many years after they finish their courses. Are they still in a position to pay these, uh, you know, to pay these rents? I mean, students are the ones that are most likely to sort of walk away um, from, from these types of payments. Well, I, I guess that's true. I mean, I, I study in the UK myself, you know, I mean, I, I do face the same problem. But I guess it's, it's no choice because that's how it works now. I mean, if you want to stay in these uh, student accommodation, you have to pay pay rent in advance and they can't get away with that. Another interesting fact is that if you look at all the, um, in terms of the international students that are coming into the UK, the, the highest proportion that we see now is from China. And to be honest, a lot of these students are pretty wealthy. So they have no problem. And, and how do Hong Kong retail investors get involved in, in this type of market? I mean, this is something that for many people here is not uh, an area that they will know much about. But how, how do they become involved in this if they want to? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this, this is why um, I'm so excited uh, this week uh, for this project because it's the first time we're actually bringing this uh, to retail investors like, like what Renita mentioned. This has always been for institutional investors, right? So they can actually get involved by actually investing in a unit themselves and actually have full control on the investments. They can actually um, decide to use it. They can rent it to students. They can keep it for their kids, you know. Um, uh, so basically uh, what we're doing is uh, we're having a roadshow uh, in Asia. So this week we're starting in Hong Kong uh, at, the, at the Park Lane. So so, uh, you know, we're offering these to the investors here in Hong Kong. And when you say you're offering this to investors, uh, are you offering the ability to specifically buy into a property or is it a fund? It's not a fund at all. It's, it's a property. It's just like any residential property. You choose a unit, you buy it, and you have full control. You can uh, appoint the property management company by the developer or you can actually use your own uh, property management company as well. So and it's entirely up to up to them. And what kind of returns are we looking at? We're talking about uh, a guaranteed return from the developer of 10% per annum for five years. For five years? For five years, yes. And how does the guarantee come about? The guarantee comes about from uh, basically, uh, you know, you have a strong developer. I mean, uh, you're probably talking about the top five developer in, in student accommodation in UK. So they will basically um, uh, will give an outright guarantee. If the rental is, uh, is short of 10%, they will top it up. If the rental is more than 10%, well, you keep it. Okay, thank you so much. That is Kingston Lai, and he is the CEO of the Asian Bankers Club here in Hong Kong, and the founder, too. Okay, uh, Peter, any closing thoughts for the morning? Well, it'll be interesting to see how the markets um, sort of continue their, their post-Fed minutes um, sort of gains, if, if at all they do, or whether or not we're going to see another lurch sort of downwards. Because one of the things the Fed didn't say in its minutes was what exactly is it going to do about, you know, the, the lack of global growth and the, the, the deflationary environment we're in. Absolutely. Well, let's take a look at uh, the markets that are open thus far. We have the Nikkei, which is open and it is up uh, eight, uh, eight tenths of a percent to 15,000. 
5,722. And Australia's ASX also opened up 1% to 5,302. Uh, the euro to the US dollar is 1.27. US dollar to the yen is 108. And Great Britain pound to Hong Kong dollar is currently 12.52. Brent crude oil currently at $91.63. And uh, gold is at $1,205 per ounce. Well, that brings us to the end of this morning's edition of Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast before we depart. Um, it will be cloudy, uh, with cloudy periods mostly in the morning, but fine during the day with a maximum temperature of around 30 degrees. Right now, the temperature is 25 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 66%. This is Money for Nothing and I am Renita Malhotra-Hora signing off. Thank you, Peter. Thank Peter you, Lewis Renita. Consulting, my uh, co-host for Thursdays. All right, and now it's time for the news with um, Ben Chia. Thank you. Democratic lawmakers say CY Lang needs to give a full account of a secret deal he made with a listed Australian company just after he announced he was running for chief executive nearly four years ago. Fairfax Media says Mr. Lang pocketed tens of millions in secret fees, some of which were paid after he took up Hong Kong's top job, but none of which were declared. The allegations surround the buyout of DTZ, of which Mr. Lang was formerly a director. Civic Party leader Alan Lang says the chief executive may have breached his fiduciary duties to the fine property services company. He, of course, owed a duty to the company to tell the shareholders that he, in fact, had taken uh, this sum of money from uh, the uh, company that is making the bid for the takeover. Uh, now, if that is an offence uh, committed in Hong Kong, uh, it would be a serious offence under the Prevention of Bribery Ordinance. A statement from CY Lung's office insisted he had done nothing wrong. The Undersecretary for Constitutional and Mainland Affairs, Lao Kong Wa, says there are difficulties still to be sorted out before tomorrow's talks between student leaders and the government can go ahead to try to end the occupation of the heart of Hong Kong. Mr Lau says they are still trying to sort out final details, including where the meeting will be held. That is the target date, tomorrow 4 p.m. But there are some, some requirements because if we can't find any place uh, to hold a meeting, uh, there may be some difficulties. So there are a lot of difficulties ahead. We hope that we can solve it as soon as possible.